Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Uh, for the past six months, uh, our team at the ODI has been uh, looking at the notion of um, releasing data, working with data, making data more accessible while maintaining trust, and especially in the case of personal data, how does anonymization work with data and open data in particular. Uh, I'm really, really happy to introduce today Fintel O'Donnell, uh, a senior data uh, technologist uh, at the Open Data Institute, who is going to talk to us about open data and anonymization. Fintel. Sure. Hello. Um, yeah, if anyone's confused about what a technologist actually is, it, uh, it's kind of a mix between like software engineering, design, maybe some research as well, and communication as well on top of that. Uh, yeah, so as Olivier said, it, uh, we had this project uh, on about anonymization open data, uh, which we've been looking at. And so the kind of key outputs we've kind of been doing from it is uh, there was a, it's kind of an introductory report. And so our kind of audience we're thinking of would be people who are kind of new to the topic who don't, are, aren't that familiar with it. Maybe, maybe they're kind of a data science, data practitioner. They go, all right, you're anonymization, go for it. And they have, just have to anonymize data. And they, they don't know the ins and outs. And so we're trying to, like, that was our target audience. So we're trying to do not too long, not too intense introductory reports, which we'll be putting out soon enough. Uh, also, we're looking into doing uh, e-learning online course as well. Uh, also, so for this project, we I'll refer to them a couple of times. We uh, we had a kind of academic research uh, consultants uh, write some kind of more technical, in-depth reports on a literature review, uh, more technical aspects, key players in anonymization. Um, I also made a synthetic data coding tutorial uh, aimed at programmers written in Python. Say you wanted to, like, uh, kind of looking at how you could uh, anonymize a A&E data set. I'll talk about more about, about A&E later. Um, yeah, so what we found is that, like, doing user research and talking to people, there seems to be kind of... Uh, Maybe this is a core group of anonymization experts and kind of people really in into the industry who who like get this area and like really get it. And then there seems beyond that there seems to be kind of fuzzy notions around what is personal data, can it be released? Um, yeah, like uh, and techniques around that and what exactly is anonymization? Is it just removing names or is there much more to it? So. Um, yeah, so while I go and talk, you know, talk on during this, and uh, your mind may wander onto different topics, like it sometimes does with me, just try and picture yourself in this situation. So imagine you work in, say, the NHS, and you've been, you've been tasked, you're the data scientist, and you've been tasked with, like, uh, they say, right, our A&E data, it's really important, it's uh, so much researchers could do, and the public know, and journalists know, and media know, and we'll try and open it up. But... Don't try and, but we're going to open it up, but also remove all the personal information. In it. And imagine you'd be given that task, right? Uh, so, you know, people's lives are in there. And, like, good research in this could save lives, but also you want to maintain people's privacy. I'll kind of get back to this topic later. Um, so, yeah, and also, like, I was actually at a talk yesterday, or at a conference yesterday. It was a privacy conference. And this is, so I, talk, I was just saying it in the hypothetical, but... There's a, there was a guy from the British Heart Foundation. He says they're really trying to get uh, data to data scientists now. But a real problem for them is that even though 
one of the organizations that people, he said, that people trust the most in the UK is um, medical research agencies. They still, even the people who've been helped by these organizations, they still don't entirely, people like the patients, general public, don't entirely trust them with their data and giving over their data. So anonymization is at one level a kind of like removing information, but it's also about maintaining trust and being trustworthy in your actions when opening, sharing uh, data about people. Uh, yeah, so, so part of the confusion, so sometimes open data is, does have people in it. And um, I think the misconception sometimes is that, like if, if there's personal data in there, you know, we're all like GDPR, lock it down, can't be opened up at all. But there's like counter examples to that that currently exist. So obviously the census has personal information, but which they collect, store, but then do certain anonymization techniques, more generalized statistics about areas. There's also, say, MPs' expenses, which is personal data, but we've seen it in the, uh, we've seen it in the public interest too that they have to, that has to be opened up. And say, list of uh, licensed practitioners in a certain area, you can look that up. That's, you know, that's names, that's addresses, things like that. So, um, yeah, so it is the case that uh, open data can be made of personal data. Um, yeah, and so this is, this is quite a nuanced topic. So these are like a few definitions from three different areas. So there's personal data in the kind of GDPR sense, which is uh, information that can identify uh, s certain people. Um, there's also sensitive data, which, is, uh, which we've taken from the Office of National Statistics. So that's data that, if compromised, can cause serious harm to an organization or person. Uh, so, like, say... Um, so for an organization, it could be like corporate confidentiality or sensitive information about a person that, you know, can't be released. But sometimes sensitive data can be opened. Like, say, in the case of maybe about maybe five to ten years ago, maybe, there was, say, Enron, and that was seen that there was a huge batch. It was like half a million of their emails were, like, uh, were released after it went through the courts or whatever. So sensitive information about that organization that was, that it was judged to be, that's fine. Or say, say a member of elected office, say they might have personal information about their health records that we go, okay, again, that's in public. It's sensitive, but we're gonna make it, we're gonna make it open. We're gonna make it public. And then lastly, kind of, it is, it's data. So this is from, uh, there's a law definition uh, that data, so private data is data about uh, people, but, and it can't be in the public domain. And if it was, it would cause a person harm. So, like any, the best way to uh, explain anything is a Venn diagram, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's like, it's this uh, non, not always overlapping that sensitive data is personal data. Sometimes um, uh, sensitive data can be, as we say, about collectives like organizations. Uh, and uh, personal data doesn't always have to be sensitive, like the list of licensed practitioners. And so we can move personal data into the open data space in certain situations. We can also move... Uh, sensitive data in, into the open data space as well. Um, sometimes also, yeah, we can use a method of redaction. You know, I do an FOI request, I get back um, some information, but I also get lots of, uh, like, say, blacked out lines on the reports. And lastly, say the private data we're trying to open up or make in the, make in, in, uh, we're trying to open it up, put it into the op an open space or make it more open, uh, we can use the method of anonymization, the titular anonymization. Um, yeah, so 
good time to, for a definition of it. So the, uh, the consultant or the research group that we were working with, this was their definition, and this is not the definition. There are multiple ones, but it's a definition, just to cut it across. Uh, so yeah, it's a process that alters a data set to reduce the risk of re-identification as much as possible. And if you talk to enough anonymization experts, then they will, very smart people and very intense, and they'll say, there's no such thing as anonymization, forget it. it if, like, uh, it's, so they would all almost have this, this kind of, like a, a kind of holy goal that you would, like you're trying to reach, but you can never get there. So that all you're, all you're doing is reducing the risk of people being re-identified. And it's kind of something that you're, anonymization is something that's like you're asymptotically like getting towards, really. And you're just reducing that risk. It's kind of like, maybe as an like offhand example, it's like, you know, is your house safe? And like, sure, yeah, I've locked the door, I've locked the window. So it's like, I'm, that, that's yeah, suitably safe. That's good enough. Is, is it safe from absolutely everything? No, it's impossible. Like, you know, what if there's a, you know, a meteor hits Earth or something like that? But you go, it's, it's safe enough. It's, I'm, you know, I'm secure in that. Um, yeah, so, like, when you're doing anonymization, obviously, we kind of know what that you're, you're generalizing information or you're removing certain information. Say you remove the names, right? And say from our NHS A&E example, say we go, say there were, like, names in that straight off. We go, right, names, got to get rid of them. So that's fine. You go, I've reduced the risk. That's one step in reducing the risk of people being re-identified. But all of a sudden, you've removed names, so you've, you've taken a certain utility out of that. So no long, I can't any longer find out how many, I don't know, how many people called John went in with a broken leg. That utility is gone. You go, well, I, that's not really utility we care about, or it's not really it's not high on our list of utilities or use cases that we care about. So it's this constant like dance or this constant balance between removing information such as you're protecting people in your data set but, so that you reduce the risk, but trying to keep as much of the core use or core information within that data set. Um, yeah, so we referred to, we talked to quite a lot of people actually, but uh, two kind of key documents we looked at, and if you want like deeper uh, info in this, uh, really recommend the uh, on the right the Information Commissioner's Office. They have a yeah really good report on this that uh, came out a few year, quite a few years ago. And also one of the key things that we kind of looked at was the uh, so this is the UK Anonymization Network, and they have uh, <coughs> their anonymization decision making framework. And within that, they had uh, they had ten steps that you kind of you take uh, to, in your kind of um, anonymization process. Uh, but they're updating it now, and they sent us on to it, uh, sent us on one. So, but it's now twelve steps. So you had ten, you have twelve. So it's twenty percent extra steps in the brand new version for free. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but what we'll do now is um, take you through those uh, twelve steps. Uh, we kind of broken, chunked them into like seven different sections, but I'll go, I'll go through each of those and kind of, uh, like the ODIs, like we talked about each of the steps and like tools out there, ways to think about it, ways to approach each of those, those steps. And we'll, we'll talk about what we saw, we, we thought from that. Um, of, that was like our view of, what, of ways to go about the, the, the 12 steps. Uh, so again, yeah, so it is uh, describe the use case, map the data system, map the legal issues, engage with stakeholders, evaluate the data situation, select and implement the processes, and maintain trust. 
Super easy, done and dusted, we can all go home. Um, yeah, so going with step one, um, describe the use case. So people are coming more from a, like say, product background or maybe like a, yeah, software engineering, like producing products. This is maybe quite normal to you, but it's, it's kind of thinking about, and so I guess I was coming from, actually it's probably, go back, like look at this. So like when I came to it, my background's maybe more uh, engineering, machine learning, algorithmic type background. I was thinking like anonymization is say this. It's like, give me the crazy algorithm that will just solve all my problems and you know, use differential privacy and all these cool things. Uh, but actually, there's, it's, it's way more. There's, there's much more to it. And uh, step one is it's kind of, it's about, like a lot of it, like everything, is, uh, it's about people, really. And so this is about understanding the kind of, not the utility itself, but like the people who, like the people who will be using this. So say with the A&E data set, like, um, like who, who do you think will be using it? And like, how do they intend it? Are they journalists? Like, and so they have a certain set of skills. Are they... Like data scientists, and they're you know they're going to throw lots of like uh, like uh, like algorithms at it. Uh, will be yeah uh, reporters. Well, like so who who is it? Like how are they using the data set and kind of meeting like what are their like needs or whatever? And this kind of uh, like age old uh, user research methods to kind of to get at that. This is just a selection that's worth thinking about. Um, so this is straight up like user interviews, which is at the start of your process before you go, uh, just, just find out who these people are, go meet them, have a call or something like that, and just sit down for half an hour and go kind of take down notes on what they're looking for from this data set or data sets that you're going to release. Um, trying to understand their particular needs, start to see patterns among those different people you talk to and go, okay, these are some of the core goals. These are some of the core utilities that we, got, we want to keep into our data. Um, there's also user personas, which is like fictional characters you create to kind of make it so that people just aren't these like uh, removed uh, kind of abstractions or whatever. It's like to make these, these people alive or whatever uh, in, in people's minds or whoever's designing this data set. And lastly, there's, say, after the process you released it, you want to do some usability testing, which is like you might, uh, you've released it, so you go to uh, someone's office and you go, okay, I want you to try and get the data and figure out whether you can find, uh, you know, how many people from a certain area, what's the waiting times in a certain hospital. See if you can do that, go for it. And then you go, okay, they could do this, but they couldn't figure that out because we actually removed that information. And then you, you might take that, and take that back and kind of tweak what your anonymization process was. Um, yeah, maybe slightly shameless ODI plug. There's a, there's a, we have also made this thing called the Data Ethics Canvas which um, is a bit like what it sounds, uh, in that it's a kind of a tool in a very loosest sense. It's a big piece of paper you kind of can give out, uh, share amongst people, and kind of uh, talk to every, people involved about asking questions about, uh, you know, where did this data come from? What are the benefits of this data being released? What are the potential harms? Um, what's in the data? What's not in the data? Uh, questions like that. Uh, like and kind of getting a more like inviting more people into my conversation about uh, the uses or possible uses of, of your data and the kind of ethical questions around it as well. And um, yeah, I kind of said so. Maybe there's sometimes a mis uh, misperception of the ODI that it's just uh, we just care about open data and that's it. Like we kind of we think that 
data should be as open as possible, but you know, to a certain extent. So there's this uh, data spectrum, which some people here might be familiar with, in that it goes all the way from like closed internal access, so say your contract and work, over to all, all the way on the very right, which is the examples like the bus timetable or whatever. And so say with, uh, and then say in the middle, it's more, oh, you, you can get access to this data, but you have to sign certain contracts or there's certain agreements with how you're going to use it. Um, so say in the, you know, opening up medical research uh, data, there's, you have this closed, like very private information. And depending on what environment that's going to be released into, that's going to affect your anonymization process. So actually, as a good example, uh, we talked to, people who worked in the Scottish Government Statistical Agency, and they say that they do some level of anonymization, but they, when they, re they release records into, uh, to researchers, but they have to like, sign certain agreements or whatever when they use that. So that's kind of in the middle point. So you might do some level of anonymization for that, but you know the risk is going to be extremely high if you release that just into the general public. So you go, okay, we'll, just, we'll, we'll release some like, statistics or more general information. But the actual records, even the slight, somewhat redacted records, uh, um, we're not going to put that out in the open. But we're going to give it... So again, so it's not like... So it's about the risk inherent in, in both in the environment and the, pro, and the kind of maybe more uh, the algorithms you use or the, the actual process you use. Um, next, after that, is uh, kind of mapping the data ecosystem, which uh, is a bit like what it sounds. Is we've done some work on this as well. So this is uh, so for data set you have that you want to want to share. Then it's about identifying like the the actors involved in this and uh, the flow of data between them, and also the value. And so when you list out all the people that are involved in something, then you can kind of go through each of those and say what are the potential benefits, what are the potential threats to each of those as well. And you can see the interaction or movement of the data and it helps you spot or kind of, and also communicate to people as well, uh, what are the risks involved in this situation. So um, that's kind of cheating with that a and &E example. So NHS England uh, are working uh, with ODI Leeds, our sister organization, and they're currently aiming to release anonymized A&E data. So it's, um, it's 70 million records, which is slightly terrifying and highly sensitive as well. Uh, the main data scientist is called Jonathan Pearson. And he's an absolute hero. I've been in the room of him getting lots of very intense questions about this and like the risks involved. He had an answer for every single one. It was actually very impressive. Uh, so you imagine the uses of this. So it's like academics, like health watchdogs, NHS itself can understand um, uh, hospitals, how they're doing. Uh, and then just the general public, like, you know, like we know those A&E waiting time, that's always like front page or like top story news. And so we tried a data ecosystem mapping exercise with them. And uh, unsurprisingly, the NHS is a very complicated place. Uh, yet there, that was a small selection of the posts that's going around. But, and so this is like some of the flow. So I know this is probably not going to be very visible to everyone here, but just it's important to understand that it, you, can, you, you can create these maps of like where the data is moving to. Uh, if you just wanted to, a quick run through, if I can actually move, um, public comes into a hospital, the NHS Trust gives, collect, collects the data from the hospital, goes to NHS Digital, is the NHS England, and then they pass it to their leads and then say like, the public get access to it, synthetic data, or data enthusiasts, journalists, health watchdogs. There's many more people involved. But, so that's, that's also a tool, an approach 
to understanding yeah what's happening within within your uh, within your data ecosystem. So you can kind of what helps now is like because you can you've mapped it out, you can start to identify uh, different types of actors as well. So in this, it's like so we we kind of had three groupings, which is insiders, like who has access to like the super secure, private, like highly private, highly sensitive. Um, um, a and E data. So it turns out there's a, there's a few actors involved in that. Uh, there's privileged access, which is people who don't have access to, but they might take the say the the open data, and then they might take the uh, some other data sets they have access to, and then you combine those to possibly re-identify people in the open uh, A and E data. And then we everyone else, just the general public as well. Um, yeah, map legal issues. I'm probably kind of going to skim over this, maybe do a little bit of hand-waving, but it's basically talk to uh, your legal experts when dealing with this um, because it's a yeah, very complicated topic. But there's just a couple of things I'll say on it pretty briefly. Uh, GDPR does actually mention anonymized data. So they say when uh, if it has been suitably anonymized that the data is no longer, like, beholden to uh, GDPR. Um, yeah, but the personal data before it is. Probably an interesting thing, though, is if you release your data out in the open and you've anonymized it, but then some it kind of uh, some person comes along and goes, oh, yeah, I use, like, voter records, and I found out, you know, this person with this, uh, with this birth date, and they've re-identified that person in your open data. All of a sudden, that data is now personal data, so therefore it's covered by GDPR, and all of a sudden you're back in GDPR land. Um, yeah, so that's just something that's like something something to think about uh, while you're doing going on this process. And uh, yeah, maybe more on the map stuff, like understand who your controllers and processors are within the uh, GDPR framing of it. Who, like who's doing the collection and who's doing the more uh, analyzing of it as well. There's also things like the doing a data protection impact assessment. Uh, uh, there's a which sounds like just a bunch of words put together, but it uh, is there's a good thing in the Information Commissioner's Office website. Just actually their website's really good just for like plain English explanations of what, what that is and what's involved. Um, yeah, and talk to your data protection officer. Okay. But uh, yeah, so next up, so it's engage with stakeholders, a bit like what it sounds like. It's so there's obviously, so we talked about just the people using it, but there's way more people, like, and understanding the use cases, but there's way more people involved in, in, the, in the project as well. So it's talking to people who are, kind of, who are involved, affected, uh, kind of uh, managing the, the, the data release that you're, you're intending to do. And so it's a kind of, you want to go through a process of, like, understanding them as well, building up trust with them, like so, so that they like they trust you to do the right thing in this case. Also, maybe some people like don't want this to happen, but you believe it. So, say in the A and E releasing A and E data, maybe some hardcore privacy like uh, experts or people who believe in the sanctity of keeping that information private, that they go, even if it does bring certain benefits, it's not worth the risk of people's. And you go, well, we think it'll bring a lot of good research into it. So, and kind of making that and. There might also be people who want you to do well, but there might also be people who want to like shut this project down as well, for sometimes completely understandable uh, reasons as well. So um, it's kind of to break down some of these stakeholders and the type of ones. Data consumers, we've kind of talked about already. The people who are going to use it, 
what's the what's the utilities, what do they care about? It's probably going to be the data value or the, what's actually in it, and how you're maintaining access to it. And you're going, you know, is the website going to stay up? Like, is it easily available? Um, yeah. So also then the people who are kind of maybe providing you the data, say uh, NHS trusts or who, like they probably care about yeah the the privacy of the data subjects and yeah how secure. Uh, how secure the, the data is in its release. Uh, data subjects, who's in it? So, say, patients, or just like kind of understanding them. And this is probably a hard part in terms of communication as well. So say you had to just let people know. You have to let people know about, uh, say, research, also about kind of anonymization, what that is, to a large and highly diverse audience with lots of levels of understanding um, that their data or data about them is going to be kind of released or put out there and how do you kind of maybe quell their fears or like understand what they want what's the like that's a tough communication thing but it's about understanding them because like that like if if you don't do that well and don't do the communication well then say it's misinterpreted like uh you know some headlines like oh nhs just released or will you know will be releasing just health records out in the open then if it's misinterpreted, that's, a, that's as much of a threat as anything because that could just be bad PR, project be shut down. Um, and uh, also there's just internal management who are probably quite scared of A, getting sued and B, just bad reputation and all damage. And they go, okay, you know, is it worth all this effort? And so, they can't, like, so it's about convincing them that the, the benefits of opening this data, of sharing this data, are worth the what you believe to be, if you've done enough work, the negligible or small amount of risk or acceptable level of risk, put it that way. Um, yeah, so taking, uh, yeah, so taking this here, it's like taking our data ecosystem map so we can kind of talk about, we can see the, the, different, uh, the different stakeholders involved, so it's the patients, and there's also uh, health watchdogs, there's, uh, yeah, internal management as well, obviously. And so you can kind of use your data map and kind of understand the stakeholders from that and then start picking apart how you're going to communicate with them, build their trust. Uh, next after that is evaluating the data situation, kind of looking at it for threats. So with your... Uh, so we actually we did this exercise with uh, NHS England and we kind of went through each of these, like each of the actors and we... Uh, made uh, lots and lots of post-its about all the things that can possibly go wrong. But we also looked into all the benefits that can, each of these actors can have. So benefits to patients, say, you know, it could be like, you know, better research, better services, you, you believe. Uh, what can go wrong from, say, the media, like misinterpretation. And so we kind of, like, we broke it down to a few, like, just a few examples of the classes of threats out there. So people might be getting false insights from it. And... Another threat is you've done, you've actually been too scared, done too much anonymization, and you've now just have like kind of very loose. Not there's not actually much information left because you've been uh, maybe possibly overly worried about people being re-identified. You've kind of gotten rid of all the information from it, uh, and also just general fear around the project as well. Um, yeah, then on to maybe the more hardcore like technical aspect of it. So it's selecting and implementing the processes, which I'll yeah, explain now. So depending on your data, depending on the situation, depending on the topic, um, yeah, you have to choose 
which, which methods, which tools, which algorithms you're going to use to actually start uh, removing the data, but also testing it. So it kind of breaks down into, you can think about it in two ways. So how are you going to secure it? Like this is the security and just removing, say, information, personal information from it. So it's the security of the environment. Are you going to open it? Are you going to use uh, uh, Sherman under agreements, uh, uh, things like that? And then how, do you, how are you going to test uh, how are you going to test your data? Say you've, you've done the anonymization process, how are you going to test that it's still got everything you want in it? Uh, maybe statistical tests, maybe uh, interviews with, say, stakeholders. Um, how do you know it still has value in it? And how do you know it's actually safe? How do you know that all the personal information has been gone? What's your testing framework around that? Um, yeah, in terms of the actual controls you can do, there's a few types. And I'll, I'll give a couple of examples now because it can seem a bit abstract. So you can just straight up delete certain information. You just go, right, there's names in there, uh, or staff ID number, right, just get rid of it, forget it. It's like just being, we're getting rid of it. There's disruption as well, and kind of uh, methods say, like differential privacy, work off this, where you add a bit of random noise into it such that you go, okay, that's about the same. So it's sometimes used in location data when they're opening up, they add a bit of noise. So it, roughly, it's about where people are going, but you can never really tell where people started. Like, tell for certain that's where a person started and stopped. And then generalization, which is probably very common as well. It's just you change, say, salaries in your data to salary ranges uh, or ages to age ranges. So taking an example, this is from the ICO's guide. So say you were a, um, a transport organization in a city, whatever city, and you, people have all these go-cards and they use them to get around the city. And so you store things like the age of the passenger, when they're born, and how long they took. You go, okay, well, if we release that and I knew a person's go-card number, then I could just find out every single, like, I could find out every single place they've been to starting and stopping and how long they took to get there. That's obviously a huge risk. Um, so you can do, so there's a few things in that. You can, so maybe do a hash of the go-card number so it still has it in there, but you can't, people can't identify to the real thing. Take age bands instead of, so generalize the ages. Keep maybe the starting end point and then also generalize the journey time. Uh, with NHS England, they have a really, really, uh, on the ODI Leeds website, it's really worth Googling. They have a very in-depth uh, blog post on all the steps they took in uh, anonymizing that data. So they <coughs> took out, they changed postcodes, which is obviously very easy to identify people based on postcodes, and used a thing called the index multiple de deprivation decile. Uh, times, they used generalization on times, so they had exact time people came in, and they just said, well, four-hour chunks are, are good enough. And uh, kind of interesting one as well, like definitely worth thinking about. So uh, NHS have four different categories of gender when people go into A&E. So there's male, female, there's uh, uh, didn't say or not specified. And so the latter two, obviously the smaller percentage, much smaller percentage. So if they were to turn up in an open data set, those people would be much, much easier to identify. It's a tough choice because you're also saying, well, you're going to say, well, protecting maybe more vulnerable people. You're going to remove those two classes, so it's just male and female. But so you, that utility is kind of taken out of it, but in the interest of protecting or reducing the risk of re-identification of those people. It's kind of some, that's just a good example of the kind of maybe tougher choices you have to, you have to make. Um, 
And last out of all this, uh, out of these steps, is yeah, maintaining trust. So, say you've gone to your and I don't want to give the example like uh, maybe the idea that this is like this linear process that you're going to go through and just go through once. It's you know start, go back, change something, try maybe a, a method or an algorithm. You go, that's oh, not good enough. Then go back and explain say to stakeholders what the usage are. So this is uh, not a straight linear process. So, but say after you put it out there and kind of maintaining trust, making sure the situation's okay because like things like change over time. So uh, new data sets get released that could possibly re-identify people. Uh, yeah, so it's about uh, maybe someone does get re-identified. Like uh, how are you going to, like you, you have to have a plan in place for that. So say if people have been re-identified and you found out immediately. So you would instantly go, okay, how bad is it? What can be done? Should we just take down the whole thing? Like, how are you, how are you going to notify people that have been re-identified? How are you going to uh, assess how bad it is? That's just the initial thing. And then it's like, how do you deal with maybe more uh, the fallout of it? How are you going to communicate to people what went wrong? How are you going to, uh, what are you going to do in future about that? And then also, like, communicating to stakeholders what could possibly, what could happen to them or why it happened as well. And then lastly, what are your lessons taken from that? Like that, what, what, what happened? And then um, what procedures you're going to put in place? And uh, yeah, so then as the project goes on, it's just, it's about maintaining that, that trust of people that you're doing the right thing in this and uh, just keep, like, figure out how you're going to engage with people as it goes along. Just keeping people updated with both the, keeping everything safe, but also the benefits from it and why you've done it, you know, the purpose you, uh, of the project as well. So that's the UCAN 12 steps. I'll do just a couple of slides about, you know, funky, cool uh, technologies out there now these days. Uh, differential privacy, this, I don't, have, I don't have a reference for this, but I think it could be the number one uh, most used anonymization technique in the world today. So I, th uh, I, I thought it was Apple, but it turns out I think Google Chrome was the first instance of this, um, of, of it being used. But I don't want to get into a definition of it just here, but it's about collecting statistics from a population, but kind of never being sure on the exact statistics about one person, but generally you can, you can, you, you, you can trust that, in, like you can trust the, the general population statistics. Um, Google Chrome had it, and they use it for certain usage and malware statistics. Uh, since iOS 10, it's been with Apple, and also Uber have a thing on GitHub, which they use differential privacy for releasing um, uh, journey information as well. Um, yeah, so I th it's pretty much on everyone's phones these days. So like this is this is a huge, huge technology. Um, yeah, then also something that's kind of uh, generally a lot of, especially because it's uh, a lot of inf interest now is uh, synthetic data, which is especially with a lot of deep learning techniques these days. It's kind of you've basically you take the original data set; it's got personal information in it. You build a model of that using whatever funky neural network or whatever you want. And uh, using the model, you then generate a completely new data set. It can be the same size. It can be 10 times bigger. It doesn't really matter. But because it's picked up the patterns, the kind of high-level patterns, it then uses that to generate a whole new data set. Um, there's questions about, so the Office of National Statistics uh, have some really, really good uh, reports on this, just about 
can they use that for possibly releasing data sets out there? What it's, it definitely has a usage of um, testing software systems, because usually it takes ages just to get the agreement in place such as, such as you can share data. But if you do this, then if you have the same columns and you have the same data types in these columns and you just fill out random data, that's useful just for building software systems. If it has some of the statistical information, maybe you know averages, uh, means, uh, variances, things like that, it means people like data scientists can start building algorithms that they use for testing it. They go, okay, that's good enough. Now let's try another original one. There's questions around how much you can trust the synthetic data set to have accurate information in it. That's debated. So it's kind of, it's all synthetic data kind of exists in this spectrum of like completely random data that just has the same structure all the way up to having lots and lots and lots of the statistical patterns in, in the data. But you realize the closer and the statistically, the more accurate that synthetic data set is, the higher the risk of re-identifying people, especially outliers um, within that. So, um, yeah, that, that's about it on the, on the presentation. Uh, yeah, if you want to know more about the project itself and any of the outputs we're putting out there, advice, people to talk to, uh, yeah, just contact me, uh, FOD at the ODI.org. And, uh, yeah, if, also, I was kind of surprised with this talk as well. I kind of just expected maybe just like one cryptography nerd in the corner and someone who was just here for, I don't know, free coffee or something like that. But it actually like was fully booked or whatever. So I'm kind of, if people just have examples of why they're interested in anonymization, what data sets, what situations you could possibly use it in, then uh, yeah, just feel free to talk about it and just ask questions now if you're interested. But thanks. Uh, for the stream, for the stream. Is, uh, okay, of course. Um, yeah, thanks for the talk. Um, uh, what I what I always find um, uh, astounding is that we, uh, on a daily basis, give uh, our private data or personal data in a in a very uh, easy way to a number of big organisations, but also to um, uh, banks. Um, so then, obviously. The, the the privacy of the data needs to be um, guarded, but isn't that like a hypocrisy that on one side we're willing just to give our data away without even knowing and what's happening with it, and on the flip side we're now saying, well, yeah, we have to be very careful with our data and who treats our data. So, yeah, I don't know if it's a question. It's more something that I, I'm, I, I struggle to, to understand where this whole anonymization of data, where is that requirement? Yeah, I guess, the, yeah, so I guess it's about the trust of people using that, like uh, people using that data properly as well and uh, that you've kind of given consent and you've given... So it, it's interesting, we say, with banks that they often use anonymization techniques to share data between departments that so different departments are maybe certain partners as well so it's if you remember the spectrum it's more just moving data to the middle um yeah like yeah the trust question so i guess in your case that you're, you're we might be giving up our, well, we our are, aren't we? 
Is it, does it lie in anonymization? Because that, that down the line, I see we taking ownership or, or individuals taking ownership. Oh, you just hold up the mic, so, too. So, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so does it lie in anonymization? Maybe we're, we're, you know, we're looking very far down the line, but um, it's more uh, you know, individuals taking ownership of their, of their own data and determining when that can be accessed. So... Um, yeah, it's not. It's and and that's where it kind of the 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 ownership lies, not the ownership with. So if if the NHS has my data, then uh, and they want to use that data, then they should come to me. I mean, you know, they can't do that for tens of thousands of patients. I mean, that that there can be something built that can can uh, technology as technology advances that can kind of build in that, that uh, um, permission that I would give the NHS or, or any organisation to do something with my data. So then in that respect, we, do we need to anonymise the data? Or, you know, isn't... Um, yeah, no, like it, yeah, it's a fair point and like what it's been given up for. But say with, uh, say, well, at least with what Apple claim, at least that they see it as with their anonymization techniques that they're both... Uh, getting their cake in terms of they get statistical information about the usage of phones, but they're not actually taking any personal per, personal data. That's their claim. Statistically, yeah. that doesn't exactly hold up, but it, uh, yeah, so that, like, anonymization is a way to increase usage, increase access to personal, to, to data that is based on personal data. But, uh, yeah, and so it's, it's a way maybe of, that we don't have to, like, worry exactly about the, or have to worry less about the, the trust issues about what's being done with it because you know it's going to be passed on in a, in a, and that's a sell as well to customers as well. Go, oh, actually, we're going to keep it super secure, but only when it's accessed by other parties, other organizations, then it, it will be anonymized or gone through an anonymization process. Next question. Thank you. This was really fascinating. My question is about medical data. What are your thoughts on this new development that instead of actually giving the data in any formal way, some universities and medical facilities are only giving the access to their environment, like a secure environment where they house their own data and the people who make use of that, for example, researchers or developers, only get to use that data in this safe cloud environment? Uh, so again with the, the word safe, so safe is like safe is a certain level, and so you go okay. The risk of harmful or re-identification by someone external and like harm, harmful things happening to them is massively reduced because you've controlled the environment into a safe environment, right? Uh, but safe is kind of a is like a, a spectrum, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, gradual things. So. Like people can still be re-identified from that. That could be leaked. That could, like it could get out or whatever. So if it's gone through a, a certain anonymization process, you both control the environment and control the risk from the data itself, such that you've uh, you've reduced the risk enough. So with it, so it's not like risk ever disappears. It just with a controlled environment, you know, the more control you put on the environment, the more you reduce the risk. But so anonymization is just one end of that, uh, reducing the risk of re-identification. So yeah, in shared access, maybe you don't need to do as much anonymization, like we were talking about earlier, but as you would with, say, completely open data. But uh, yeah, the, the environment is crucial to the risk of re-identification, as much as the algorithms involved. Okay, we had a question over here. Uh, hi. If, um, 
GDPR defines its own scope as to not include uh, anonymized data. How does GDPR itself define anonymization? It, it's that. Does it have a definition? It doesn't have a. No, it doesn't really have a definition. It says it's gone. It's like a. a su I can't remember the exact wording. It's like a suitable level of anonymization or an acceptable or. It's, it's one of those ones that you feel could be argued over in so a court of law. Believing it to be fought over in court then. Effectively. I don't want to speak on behalf no, of the uh, yeah. the uh, uh, authors of GDPR, but uh, yeah, it definitely is. There's no succinct or there's no exact definition? exact definition or kind of yeah, it's interpretable. Put it that way of what is an acceptable reduction of reidentification risk. Sorry, that's done on purpose. It doesn't purpose. Oh, it, great. It, yeah, it's done on purpose so that the the law doesn't stop uh, because if the law were to define a standard, an ISA standard or whatever, you basically stop the development of further anonymization technique. So what's suitable, it becomes like a, uh, like a technical standard, it evolves uh, um, with time. It's done on purpose. Yeah, okay. I understand. Any other question from the audience? Any question from Twitter? Not yet. Anyone from the audience? Yeah. Um, I'm quite interested in what you, I suppose you'd call the mosaic theory of, of identification, that you could, especially with modern computing power, join, join data sets together and work out what was, seemed to be perfectly well anonymized. And somebody who makes a particular journey every day, so you've got an anonymous Oyster card, but then you work out that the bloke who always gets the 715 and always gets off at a certain station, and then you you know that he's got a wooden leg, and then you see that he's got an STI, and then, you, you know, from lots of different data sets, you can work out quite a lot of things. Are people thinking about mosaicization of... Uh, yeah, the attack from, like, third-party data sets. And so, the, like, the canonical kind of example in the research is uh, it was a senator that they released some health records, and then uh, some researchers then went in and used... I think it was electoral registration uh, information and then use that to re-identify the person. And then there was just that, that senator's, like, uh, all their health information, just they've been re-identified in the, the, the general public. That, that, that's, like, one of the key examples. So that is slightly scary thing about opening into, like, especially putting it into the open. It's like you, can, you can't even anticipate the future of what data sets are going to be out there as well, which really raises the fear, threat, of, of re-identifying people as well. But, yeah, so I guess it's a certain acceptance of it's never zero. But do you, yeah, is the risk of that so high that any potential benefits of you opening up the data is, um, is now quashed? It's not, there's nothing worth, uh, like that risk is it's too high that it's, there's nothing, no benefits that could ever come from your data set. And that's probably just a, a judgment up to yourself of like what potential third-party data, third data sets could be out there. Um, yeah, as well, so we kind of mentioned it in the NHS example, there was like insiders and privileged access, privileged access to certain people with certain other data within the NHS. They don't have access to the core private information, but they could have some third, third or second data sets that they use. So that, again, that's part of like mapping the data system and like understanding the entire environment as opposed to just worrying about whether you're, you know, using algorithm A or algorithm B, yeah. And I guess it's convincing everyone that you've thought about that, documented your thoughts, and then so that you can convince or make your trust, or stakeholders like trust you, like you've done enough 
thinking about this. Any more questions? Okay, if not, we're going to wrap up. Many thanks, everyone. Many thanks, Fintan. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.